Welcome to the Paranormal News Insider for the week of August 2nd, 2022, in episode number 524. And this is your host, Dr. Brian D. Parsons, and we are live on the Paranormal King radio network at ParanormalKing.com. Yes, the eighth month of the year is underway. That's insane. It's, it's what happened to this year. Gosh, I wish uh, 2020 would have went by as fast as 2022 but here we are august 2nd and we've got uh well, we're back, back from a week off from last week so we got a little catching up to do we've got a few interesting stories some uh, fairly viral stories this week and I'll tell you there's all kinds of news just floating around left and right uh, all sorts of stories and it's i'll tell you what social media as a real pain in the rear end, trying to sift through so many stories, dozens of uh, stories that just I really can't tell uh, whether they're legit or not. And it seems like a lot of people are making some money by scouring social media and finding these uh, posts and, uh, you know, uploading the information to these uh, news outlets. And uh, people are making money off of other people trying to get attention. I guess is the best way to put it. A lot of uh, Bigfoot stories that uh, I don't think any of them are legit. I think most of them are fake or just made up for attention. And then, of course, you know, there people are trying to push these out into the viral Internet stream. Uh, but, man, it's making sure. it hard. But there are some viral stories out there, some legit things that uh, we'll talk about tonight. We've got uh, Internet kind of a late-breaking thing, but uh, it's kind of knew it was coming sometime this month with two uh, on sighting statistics for july we'll see just how big it was they always say july is the biggest month of the year uh we'll talk about the uh the sorry explanation for those red lights in the sky you might have seen about that story in the pacific ocean yes pacific not atlantic a lot of people were putting out uh, reports that was the atlantic it was not uh we'll talk about the missing links We'll talk about uh, the Loch Ness Monster. Is it plausible after a new discovery that the Loch Ness Monster might exist? And, of course, uh, we'll cover some UFO information from a couple of weeks ago that uh, just missed the show before last week. But there it is. We're in uh, the heat of the summertime uh, conference convention scene. I wanted really badly to go down to uh, Kecksburg and check that out, the Kecksburg UFO Festival, last weekend. I just didn't have time. Uh, I'm working like six days a week right now, so I don't have any time really to do anything. But I carve out time for the show because this is what I look forward to outside of uh, watching money go into my bank account and not being able to spend it because I don't have time to. That's the weird thing about working. You make money, but you don't have time to spend it. But I guess that's good. I don't know. We'll figure it out. So, yes, the cops convention scene is uh, 
man, I'm, I'm really missed out. I keep hearing about a lot of these uh, places that uh, didn't put their thing up, and it's almost too late because these events are already taking place uh, in the next co- couple of weeks. But uh, there's a whole bunch here in Ohio in uh, cryptozoology. And, uh, yeah, I see a whole bunch here in Ohio. It's kind of weird how those are taken off. But, uh, I don't know. You, you get saturated. Too many in the area. Uh, there's like four just in the same, literally the same five square mile radius every year. But people are, uh, really big into Bigfoot here in Ohio and Pennsylvania and, well, I guess a lot of other states, but, uh, Probably won't make any of those. I might. Actually, I might be able to make one of those, but I'll be in the area, possibly, uh, following up on a story that I've been reading about on Bigfoot. Maybe I'll go check out this uh, particular reservoir, go kayaking out there, and uh, see what I can see as far as this Bigfoot thing I keep hearing about. But love to to hit one of these conventions, Cops's conventions. And yeah, it's winding down, but if uh, if I missed any, you see uh, the list there at paranewsinsider.com, and you see one that I might have missed that's uh, at least a couple of weeks out. Let me know. I'll get it up on the website. Uh, there's no fee or anything. Somebody asked me about a fee. Do I charge to put those on? Why would I charge to put that on there? I mean, yeah, my time is money, but it's something I do for free because uh, I enjoy these conferences, conventions, and granted, some of them are horrible. Horrible. Some of them are fantastic. Uh, I don't put the horrible ones up on my list, by the way. So I'm not saying that the ones there are horrible. And the, um, yeah, I mean, th- there are some really bad ones. And I did put one on myself uh, a number of years ago. Uh, it's a lot of work. So there I do understand what people go through uh, to put one of these events on. It's very, very difficult. And, um, I mean, Goodness, the planning, the execution. Granted, most of them are, I don't want to say, they're not cash grabs either. You're not going to make a whole lot of money for um, for one of these things. It's, it's, it is the work and the time you put in. If you do make any money from it at all, it's, you, you're going to need therapy after it because it is a lot of work to put on one of these things. And, uh, I, and to tip my hat to those who are putting those things on, so again, check out paranewsinsider.com. Click on the events tab at the top. And I uh, try to break it down between ghost events, UFO events, and uh, cryptid events. Although a lot of uh, events will have people, or I should say speakers that speak in different areas. But the opportunity to meet people face-to-face at one of these events and talk about different things... Uh, is unheralded anywhere else. You're not going to do that on the internet anymore. Uh, Message boards are pretty much a thing of the past. Uh, All you see is people arguing on Twitter, uh, making smart comments on Reddit, and uh, posting pictures of themselves on uh, TikTok and everything else. So get out to one of these paranormal conferences or conventions. I do highly recommend it. Um. And, you know, each one is different. Each one has its own kind of niche. You, you've got uh, the ones out there, um, I mean, ghost-wise, like the Dead or Winter Festival is always good. Uh, if you're into the, you know, 
and a lot of these are the same people over and over again, unfortunately. Um, depends on who you like. If you like somebody, you want to go see them speak, look them up and find a convention that they're speaking at. Um, again, some of these smaller ones that aren't on every year, you're going to find uh, more local talent, local people, lo local investigators uh, versus the uh, big name people that, that happen to a lot of the big ones that are put on every single year. Uh, most cryptid events are Bigfoot-based. Uh, so every now and again, you will find one that's specific to an area, uh, such as the Mothman Festival. That's always a good one. If you're into Mothman, they have their own conference. Uh, pretty much the rest are all Bigfoot or Bigfoot-related type creatures, like the uh, the Albatwitch in uh, Columbia, Pennsylvania in October. I got to speak at that one a few years ago. Uh, kind of a different type of Bigfoot, but Bigfoot related. Uh, just like uh, there used to be a skunk ape one, but I don't think that one's been on in years. Of course, you got the Falk Monster Festival That's uh, it was two months ago, I believe. Falk, Arkansas, again, a Bigfoot related creature. So it depends on what you're into, who you want to go speak. Uh, but most of these are going to have uh, people that know what they're talking about, or at least have a, a good sense of uh, different creatures, but uh, get out there and go to these things. Again, they're not all created equal, so you know I would kind of vet these things before you you invest your money into it and take the time to go out there and do it. And if you're interested in being a uh, paranormal researcher, paranormal investigator, maybe a cryptozoologist, it's always a mouthful to say that. I see a question in chat asking about the Institute of Metaphysical Humanistic Science, which is where uh, I got my degree from, in basic metaphysics, which is kind of weird because I'm more of a science-based person. But I figured getting education and something that would balance myself out would be good. And metaphysical humanistic science isn't just like metaphysics. It's, uh, it's more about the self. Where do I fit in? into the bigger picture of the world. And it is about a lot about learning about people, learning about yourself. Uh, so it's was, it was kind of introspective, and it's kind of what uh, why I continued to go through it uh, to not only get a bachelor's, but a master's, but also a PhD. And, of course, my uh, book on the E4 method, which is uh, connecting the client and the environment together to try to figure out what is going on as far as ghosts in the home? You know, again, a people-centered approach is uh, what helped get me my master's, or my, I should say, my doctorate. Uh, provided a pretty good argument for my methodology. Uh, so the Institute of Metaphysical Humanistic Science uh, is an online and distance learning university that uh, offers a doctorate, PhD, metaphysics degrees, also Again, a lot of other areas, uh, ufology, parapsychology, uh, life coaching, hypnosis, um, all sorts of uh, varieties of metaphysical approaches. So if you're interested in education, that's it's uh, unheralded. It's uh, probably one of the better ones out there that I've seen. And I've, I did my homework on some of these, uh, but I do know the uh, gentleman who runs it. Dr. Doug, let Dr. Doug know that I sent you there. I'm not going to 
probably not going to give you a discount, but at least Dr. Doug and Loa that I'm talking about it. Uh, very good institution. I've helped uh, some of their cryptozoology stuff with uh, writing my book. So it's a little expensive, but it's uh, it's worth it. And sometimes some of these places uh, charge an inordinate amount of money, and you don't really get your return on investment. But I guarantee you, pretty much guarantee you. I mean, it's uh, with IMHS. I I got I got my investment plus. It's not just fancy letters after your name. Uh, it is a life changing thing that you'll go through when you attend IMHS, I pretty much guarantee it. Um, it is that good. It is that good. Uh, if you're not interested in, in a degree, there's also a sister university called Thomas Francis University. I could take uh, standalone courses there. Thomas Francis University, TF University. Was it .org? I can't remember. Uh, yes, yeah, it should be Dr. Or dot org. So yeah, Dr. Doug Kelly and of course Dr. Vicki Hunter, who help operate both of those, IMHS and uh, Thomas Francis University, uh, were also part of Paranexus, which is uh, kind of just sitting out there, not really doing much of anything. I am the, I kind of run that, but I don't really do anything with it anymore. It's just kind of idle. But anyway, let's get to the news. You didn't come for all that. But uh, hopefully you'll look into that, getting an education or some background and knowledge in all of this. I do, I do uh, talk a lot about knowledge, education, reading, all of these things. I think that will make us all better researchers and investigators. It's not all about belief. you got to have an understanding as well. Anyway, cryptid news this week. We've got a, uh, a few interesting stories uh, we'll talk about the missing links first. It's kind of the coolest title I've had. And, of course, we've had plenty of stories. We talk about them all the time here on exotic animals being seen or having escaped from their private menageries, backyard zoos, which are uh, kind of illegal. But it seems like people are really getting into this stuff, having their own exotic pets because it makes them feel better. Um, unfortunately, sometimes these are dumped by the owner who can no longer take care of them. We've talked about alligators, uh, servals, tigers. You know, these people think that those animals will make great pets. Well, they do when they're small, but uh, they get a little older. Uh, they're a little harder to uh, take care of. They don't really care about training anymore. They're no longer your friend. Uh, all they want to do is eat or hunt. Or bite things. And uh, that's when people are just like, well, you know, I can't deal with this anymore. Let me just leave the cage unlocked or dump it in a pond or whatever. And that's when they end up on this show. Um, probably the most popular in the last few years, other than the, uh, the, uh, the gosh, what was his name? I was going to say it. Now I've just totally left my mind. That's the snake, Wessie. Yeah, that is. Wessie the snake up in Maine a few years ago. Uh, of course, Chance the Snapper. That's probably the biggest one. The alligator caught in Chicago in a little pond up there. Got nationwide attention. Of course, Wesley was huge, too. I think that was the number one story here on the show a few years ago. Uh, one animal we've not talked about 
we've had a lot of large cats that have been uh, seen or uh, spotted out in the wild. Gosh, we've even talked about zebras last year. The zebra thing. That was kind of cool. But one animal we've not had here on the show is the Eurasian lynx. This is if I can remember. I I don't know. I don't maybe I forgot, but I don't think we've talked about the Eurasian lynx. And this one, I don't know. I thought it was going to continue to pick up steam, but it seems like it's kind of died down very quickly. I don't think they uh, any uh, anybody be uh, throwing out the first pitch for the Mets or anything about this uh, one, like Chance the Snapper did for the Cubs. But uh, last week, Suffolk County Police in Long Island, New York, warned residents that a loose exotic cat which was initially thought to be a serval or even a wandering bobcat, was seen in the area and seen to be hanging around. Now, if you're in chat, you're lucky enough to be in chat tonight, which I highly recommend because I do try to show a lot of uh, pictures to kind of uh, piece together some of these stories and and kind of add a a, uh, different dimension. Not a fifth dimension, just a... uh, so you can see these pictures. I mean, of course, yeah, you can Google stuff uh, as you're listening to the show. I think a lot of podcasts will let you kind of uh, minimize and go in and Google things. But this uh, cat, yes, initially thought to be a serval. But uh, if you look at it, you know anything about cats. That's not a serval. It's a big cat, but not a serval. And one of the biggest giveaways uh, other than the ears, those little tufts of of uh, hair on its ears, it's kind of like, I forget what it's called, but that little beard thing that they've got that the uh, lynx has. There's also some striping that's a little bit different between the Eurasian lynx and uh, Canadian lynx. The color is completely different as well. The coat. So there's a lot of things. I'm not an animal expert, but I sure do know my cats. Well, I'm not don't really like cats that much, but uh, exotic cats spend a lot of time looking at different aspects and and their their hair, their ears, uh, their patterns, their chins, their nose, even the backs of their ears to figure out the difference between uh, even a mountain lion and a bobcat, which uh, seems like it uh, happens all the time, especially on social media, people posting pictures of what they claim is a mountain lion, but then you see the the backs of the ears, which are definitely a bobcat, because nine times out of nine, you can't see the tail, which uh, obviously, if it's a long tail with a black tip, it's probably a mountain lion. could be a house cat. But if it's a short, stubby tail, probably a bobcat. Well, it's more than likely a bobcat, unless the mountain lion got his tail chopped off, which is highly unlikely. Anyway, back to this Eurasian lynx so uh, a couple of sightings, a couple of photographs of this cat. If you see the picture, you know, you've probably seen puppies, you know, little dogs, and you see how big their paws are. And you know a dog will grow into those paws. So it's a big paw. That dog's going to probably be a, a pretty big dog. Same thing here with this cat. It's got giant paws. Uh, won't get too big. Paws are usually pretty big on cats because... They rely on their stealth. Uh, they're usually ambush predators, but uh, that's going to be a big cat anyway. Uh, so the cat was identified by officials as a Eurasian lynx, which they're spot on. 
pun intended. Uh, again, it's not something we've talked about here on the show. We've, I, I know, I think we had one on the Canadian Lynx once. Uh, so after three days on the run, the young Lynx was captured. Uh, no longer a missing Lynx, but a captured Lynx uh, by the Strong Island Animal Rescue and taken to the Sweetbriar Nature Center in Smithtown, New York. Uh, Frankie Floridia of Strong Island Animal Rescue, when asked if he felt the animal was being kept illegally as a pet, he responded, quote, it was absolutely being kept as a pet. It was escaped and trying to return home. We've turned information over to the authorities of where we thought it came from, unquote. And if you um, you look at the uh, sightings of the people that have seen it, um, kind of the general, they don't give you specific areas. There was a couple of uh, videos where they showed the corner of two streets where it was found. And if you kind of do a little bit of research and digging into it, it doesn't seem like this cat went too far. It stayed in a fairly small area. And that's not, that's not usual of cats. Granted, uh, females will tend to stick uh, to, to in a location, but this cat here probably did it because it's uh, partially, and I say partially, I hate to use the word domesticated, uh, but uh, that's kind of what is going on here. People are trying to domesticate. You're not going to domesticate a Eurasian lynx. It's not going to happen. It's a wild animal. Uh, but they kept it as a pet. I guess that's probably a better way to put it. Uh, so being a pet, it's probably not accustomed to being out in the wild. So it's going to stick around where it came from. Probably not that it wants to go back in a small cage, but it, uh, I think that's why it's stuck in that area. Uh, Dr. Luke Hunter, director of the Big Cat Program at the Wildlife Conservation Society, stated that New York has one of the strictest sets of laws covering exotic pet ownership. And he said, quote, you don't get them unless you're something like the Bronx Zoo. You can't keep them as a private individual, unquote. A hunter also added he feels the cat was likely smuggled to Long Island from a fur farm where animals such as the lynx are bred, of course, for their fur. The Suffolk County SPCA created an amnesty program with the New York Department of Environmental Conservation, the DEC, uh, where people who are keeping these animals can surrender them without having charges brought against them. Uh, this cat here, though, more than likely escaped on its own. So the, the owner is probably heartbroken, uh, but they know that what they did is wrong, I'm sure. So they're probably not going to stick their head up and say, hey, that's my cat. I want him back. Sleeps at the foot of my bed. Uh, we've heard that before. Uh, Roy Gross of the Suffolk County SPCA says that they have collected black bears, monkeys, venomous snakes, alligators, lizards, and an anaconda through this program in Suffolk County. Uh, the animal has become known locally as the Long Island Lynx. It's pretty much the headlines of the Long Island Lynx here and there and everywhere. Uh, but now the Sweetbriar Nature Center has given the cat the, the name, wait for it, Leonardo de Catprio. Leonardo de Catprio. Or just Leo for short. And you may wonder why Leonardo DiCaprio is from, uh, I think he's from L.A. 
originally. He was born out there. So why would New York bother to use Leonardo DiCaprio? Well, uh, you know, Chance the Snapper was named after Chicago's own Chance the Rapper. And, of course, Leo Di, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, if you know anything about him, he's not just a, a fancy actor, but he's also an environmentalist. So, uh, and of course, Leo stems from the Latin word for lion. But personally, I, I like Missing Links. I think that's kind of a cool name. But anyway, that's I'm not in charge of that. Pretty cool story and a good thing this little guy hopefully gets a little better attention and care. Doesn't look unhealthy. Maybe a little scrawny. But at least he'll be better off. Probably never go back into the wild. But um, yeah, don't keep these things as pets. Don't, you're, you're not doing them any good. You, you think you are. But you're not. And we've avoided this this uh, this topic for quite a while since uh, what late April, I think. The Loch Ness monster has had a pretty low key year so far. Um, but yeah, he's back, or she's back, or it's back. They're back. Whatever you want to call it, I don't care. It's uh, only had four sightings. This year, according to the official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register for 2022, uh, the last sighting was way back. Again, yes, in April. However, that's not keeping the mythological creature from making the news this week. Now, the leading hypothesis surrounding the Loch Ness Monster is that it's a living plesiosaur or plesiosaur. I don't care what you say. Uh, Every time I say one or the other, somebody argues and says I'm saying it wrong, but it's, it doesn't matter. Nobody, nobody really cares. Um, that, uh, somehow this plesiosaur is how I like to say it has, uh, escaped the extinction of the species. And it's just hanging out in this small little lake in Scotland, Colt Lake in Scotland. And it's just hanging out, uh, swimming around, eating some fish every now and again. And one of the many arguments about this uh, being uh, a plesiosaur is that they were thought to live exclusively in oceans. So uh, this meant that uh, they were saltwater creatures. So the Loch Ness Monster couldn't live here. So uh, I should say the argument against the possibility. Um, and I, you know, I, I remember saying the same thing when I talked about the, uh, the Loch Ness Monster. Can't live there because it's... Uh, well, plus, they don't live in cold water like that. Uh, a recent study that appeared in the journal Cretaceous Research showcases the, the discovery of fossils from a freshwater discovery of fossils in Morocco in a 100-million-year-old riverbed, suggesting that the creature did, in fact, adapt to freshwater living. Uh, This, of course, led to headlines stating that the evidence of the creature is now plausible. So does 100 million year old fossils give any more credence to the Loch Ness Monster existing? Well, Nick Longrich, a paleontologist at the University of Bath and the senior author of the study, commented to Vice.com about his thoughts on the possibility that Nessie is a plesiosaur still alive after 66 million years when the others disappeared off the fossil record. That's an awful long time 
for a small lineage of these creatures to exist, but it's not out of the possibility. Uh, however, Longridge stated that he thought the Loch Ness Monster is, quote, fun to think about, unquote, uh, but the odds that this is a living plesiosaur is extremely low. He said, quote, is the existence of a plesiosaur in Loch Ness likely? Unfortunately, no. The existence of freshwater plesiosaurs removes one major obstacle. Could a marine lineage survive in a freshwater loch? Yes, but you still have all the other obstacles to overcome. Could a population of plesiosaurs survive in a lake the size of Loch Ness? Doubtful. It's only 22 square miles in area. It's very long, but very thin as a lake. Uh, the only lake with a marine mammal uh, today is uh, Lake Baikal, which is home to the Baikal seal. It's not very big. It's not uh, the size of a plesiosaur. Uh, but Lake Baikal is 12,000 square miles, over 500 times as big as Loch Ness. You just need a large area to hold a viable population of animals as big as a plesiosaur. And Loch Ness probably couldn't hold more than a few plesiosaurs, unquote. Which uh, I don't know if I would have added that last part because that's just adding fodder to the fire. But uh, if you can only hold a few, that probably means they're not going to be able to breed or be inbreeding. Uh, it's just not a viable size of population. And, you know, looking at the the freshwater correlation here, we don't really know enough about the plesiosaurs to say whether this was a small thing that happened. These animals are trapped here and they either, you know, took them how long to adapt. We don't know all the information. Uh, whereas Loch Ness, the, the, uh, the animals could have gotten in or out. But the, uh, the other big problem again, something I talk about when I talk about cryptozoology and Loch Ness Monster. I do kind of hate on the Loch Ness Monster a little bit. Uh, the big difference between Lake Baikal and Loch Ness is that Lake Baikal is about 25 million years old. And Loch Ness is just 10,000 years old. Uh, Loch Ness was formed during the last ice age and was covered by a giant ice sheet and carved out when it receded, about a mile thick of ice. So I don't think uh, Plesiosaur would have squeezed in there and just hung out for a couple million years till, uh, yeah, not likely. Uh, if it was in the area, it would have been crushed prior to that. So where did they come from? Uh, I think we would have discovered that in the fossil records somehow, some way. Uh, the last argument against the Plesiosaur is what I mentioned earlier, is that they disappeared off the fossil record about 66 million years ago. So is it possible that they survived? Yes, highly unlikely. We always point to the coelacanth, that big fish, uh, Madagascar, and, uh, off the coast of Africa that was discovered in the 1930s after supposedly being extinct for about the same time frame. Uh, but it's, a, uh, it's part of a lineage of fish. It's not the actual fish, but... Uh, however, plesiosaurs were much, much larger and uh, even more complex creatures than the deepwater coelacanth that uh, doesn't change too much down there. It's, it's deep water. Uh, coelacanth would have been, uh, you know, pretty, pretty fine down there, all the way at the bottom of the ocean, versus uh, a plesiosaur, which would have had to have dealt with global warming, global cooling, 
uh, different fish coming and going, a lot of adaptations, which uh, obviously couldn't uh, adapt to 66 million years ago, hence its extinction. The uh, big news this week, couldn't think of a uh, nice segue here for the UFO news, but uh, too late. We're here. UFO news. The biggest news the last two weeks with UFOs, or should I say UAPs, happened back on July 15th and was reported in a press release on July 20th. And uh, hopefully you've heard about this. Uh, It was announced that a new office was named. Uh, for the uh, the uh, research into UAPs, and it's uh, called the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, AARO. Horrible name, but uh, that is what it is. Uh, the press release from the U.S. Department of Defense read, quote, on July 15, 2022, Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks, in coordination with the Director of National Intelligence, amended her original direction to the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security by renaming and expanding the scope of the Airborne Object Identification and Management Group, AOIMSG, to the All-Domain Anomaly Resolution Office, AARO, due to the enactment of the National Defense Authorization Act for Fiscal 2022, which included a provision to establish an office in coordination with DNI with responsibilities that were broader than those originally assigned to AOIMSG. Uh, Today, uh, Ronald Moultrie informed the Department of the Establishment of AARO within the Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security and named Dr. Sean M. Kirkpatrick most recently the chief scientist at the Defense Intelligence Agency's Missile and Space Intelligence Center, as the director of AARO. The mission of the AARO will be to synchronize efforts across the Department of Defense and with other U.S. federal departments and agencies to detect, identify, and attribute objects of interest in, on, or near military installations operating areas, training areas, special use airspace, and other areas of interest, and as necessary to mitigate any associated threats to safety of operations and national security. This includes anomalous, unidentified space, airborne, submerged, and transmedium objects. That's important. Uh, The AARO Executive Council A-A-R-O-E-X-E-C, led by Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, Ronald Moultrie, will provide oversight and direction to the A-A-R-O along these primary lines of effort. One, again, surveillance, collection reporting. Two, system capabilities and design. Three, intelligence operations and analysis. Four, mitigation and defeat. Five, governance. Six, science and technology. Unquote. What a mouthful. Uh, Some other changes that happened with this include the Oversight Committee for the Airborne Object Identification and Management Synchronization Group, 
AYMSG, which was named the Airborne Object Identification and Management Executive Council, AYMEXEC. Now, this council will be renamed simply the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office Executive Council, AAROEXEC. Yikes, all these acronyms and stuff. Uh, according to the memo from Kathleen Hicks, uh, the department, uh, I should say the Deputy Secretary of Defense, quote, the AARO will serve as the authoritative office of the unidentified aerial phenomena and UAP-related activities for the DOD. The AARO is the DOD focal point for all UAP and UAP-related activities and may represent the department for such activities to the interagency, Congress, media, and public in coordination with the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Legislative Affairs and Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Public Affairs and a DOD component acting on behalf of the UAPTF or who has data analysis contracts or other material related to UAP will immediately synchronize their efforts with the AARO, unquote. Uh, of course, the, this according to the official memo from her office on July 15th. Lots of information there, but uh, interesting. We're, we're just renaming stuff. We're uh, creating a new uh, giant basket to put all of our eggs in for the uh, UAP investigation. Um, kind of like it, kind of don't like it. Kind of makes me wonder how uh, all this is going to shake out when you're uh, you're talking about putting everything into one office going through one channel uh, because that's how things get misplaced they get hidden it gets uh, redacted but uh, we'll see we'll see how things play out we'll see how information gets out and um i don't know i guess it's okay news uh, it's exciting to see them put uh, put all this information out there but i always get concerned when you start creating offices and you start changing things and changing names uh because that just means that uh, it makes the paper trail a lot longer to actually dig up any information that's uh put into one of these organizations uh, because as names change, letterheads change, the information sometimes gets lost in the shuffle. And uh, it just makes me wonder if they do that on purpose. I don't say to bury things, but to just to make it difficult for the general public to really find out what's going on out there or what these people are up to, what they've discovered, what they found, what they've uh, documented. I don't know, not to complain, because again, I've said it 100 times, actually probably 102 times, so I'll say it 103rd. I think sometimes we do give the uh, government a little bit too much credit for what they know or what they understand, um, but still, uh, the information that they're gathering, I think for the most part, we have uh, – we should be able to look at it ourselves and kind of discern – for ourselves what is going on or what they're playing around with what kind of information they have at their disposal but 
Now, when you change names and you shift things around, sometimes it makes it a little milky and a little difficult for us to discover. Uh, you know, as far as people, uh, pilots, uh, reporting things, I mean, granted, in the uh, general aviation scene, it seems like those take a few weeks to get to us. You know, obviously in the military, it takes a little longer because of national security and, um, you know, different things that are going on. If they have military equipment or different things, you've got to go through the proper channels to get any of that information disseminated and out to the general public. But uh, if you're MUFON, you get that stuff out to the general public the following month. Or if you're a member, you could probably uh, read about it right away. So that being said, let's talk about the MUFON sighting statistics for July of 2022. They're pretty quick on it. Uh, being August 2nd, just got the email this afternoon about the uh, their newsletter, about their updates for the uh, last month. And I always get excited about July. Uh, usually, if you go back to, uh, let's see, uh, 2020 here, it looks like, yeah, it was the biggest month. Well, uh, I take that back. Third biggest month. Third biggest month of the year uh, for UFO sightings. But the, pretty much the last big month of the year, a couple of months ago, or a couple of, uh, when you drop down to the rest of the year, uh, in 2019, it was the biggest month of the year. Uh, I'd go back to, no, that's not a good example there either, 2018, second biggest month of the year. Eh, pretty close. Uh, so historically, yeah, it's up there. I've only been keeping track of the month-to-month sighting statistics since 2015. Uh, but looking back at last month, last month was the best month they've had in about two years in both total and U.S. sightings. So June had a total of 633 sightings with 516 U.S. sightings. Again, the best month in two years of course, like I said, they say July is the best month best month for sightings. And, of course, you have 31 days. So you got um, more days than most of the other summer months. I guess August has 31. Uh, June only has 30. I guess you got 31 in May, right? 31 in May. April has 30. Uh, March has 31. So... You know, July, kids are out of school, I guess. People are traveling. People are out. Uh, the sun, the uh, That time of the year, it's generally better clear skies, especially in the evenings. I've seen some spectacular skies uh, lately. I spent uh, a couple of days consecutively outside looking up at Saturn and Jupiter, checking out Jupiter's moons. Uh, so you go to, obviously, in the springtime, March and April, rainy, cloudy a lot. And I live in Ohio. Trust me, I know a lot about clouds and cloud cover. Uh, we, we may get 60 days a year, it seems like, of clear skies. No, it's a little bit more than that. But it seems like not much. Uh, but I could tell you in the evenings, summertime, uh, sometimes I think I'm in, in Key West. It's just beautiful. It's warm. It's humid. Uh, but clear, sometimes breezy. 
but I think uh, throughout the most of the United States, at least the higher population areas, uh, you're getting uh, clearer skies. Uh, granted, California never rains anyway, so it's it's generally clear out there, which uh, they usually lead these sightings. But uh, people are out. Um, the only thing that I never could understand is it's it's lighter later, and it gets lighter earlier. It's the longer days, which I don't know. Maybe the shorter nights make for more sightings. I'm not sure, but statistically speaking. Seems to be higher. And I think that's just because the observers are out in that time frame. Uh, so again, June last month or two months ago, 633. Total 516 for U.S. Best month in uh, uh, quite a while. So looking at July. So last month, total sightings. There was an increase in total reports from June but nothing major. It's only by one. So 634 whopping reports. Uh, so I wasn't wrong. I wasn't wrong, but it wasn't uh, dramatic. I will see what happens in August. Kind of curious about that. Uh, the United States had 507 reports. Uh, the United Kingdom had... I lost it. Uh, 36. France had 33. Canada had 29. Brazil turned in four and Australia Australia had two uh, as did India, Germany and Italy not very much guys come on be better be better um, as far as the 507 US sightings of course California led the way with 53 sightings Florida had 42, Texas had 31, Pennsylvania turned in 27, Colorado 25. That's pretty high. They're pretty high up there on the list. I'll have to look at the per capita on that one. That's pretty good. Uh, Michigan had 23, Arizona had 18, Washington State had 16, Illinois had 15, Missouri, Ohio both had 14 reports each. Oregon had 13, Nevada and Minnesota had 12, Wisconsin had 11, Georgia, Oklahoma, New Jersey, all three had 10 reports each, uh, North Carolina and Maryland had nine each, Kentucky, Tennessee, Indiana, and New Mexico reported eight reports, uh, Louisiana and Virginia had seven, Montana and Arkansas had six, Utah, Idaho, South Carolina, and Iowa had five. Uh, Connecticut and Alabama had four. South Carolina had three. Maine and Hawaii, as well as Massachusetts and West Virginia, had two. And states turning in one, Wyoming, North Dakota, uh, District of Columbia, Nebraska, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Mississippi. All with one report. Uh, so, yeah, not overwhelming with those uh, sighting statistics, but we'll take it and uh, we'll see what happens next month. Uh, every time there's a, usually when there's a big story about UAPs and UFOs, you seem to see an influx of some of these uh, sightings, but eh, I don't know, just kind of another month, uh, kind of a mediocre month, I, I would feel. Uh, sightings 
really haven't been all that great. I don't think. Usually, uh, let's see, 2021, we averaged 563 reports uh, a month. 2020 was 632. Granted, everybody was at home. Uh, 2019 was uh, 594 per month. Um, 2018, I was missing a month, but that was 649 a month. So it kind of goes back and forth, hovering kind of around... Well, I guess it's kind of all over the place. Uh, so it just changes month to month, or I should say year to year. 640, 606, and uh, 2015 was huge. It averaged 909 reports a month. So you can see why it's fallen dramatically. And, of course, 2015 was back when they had Hangar 1, uh, the TV show, and MUFON was – was uh, you heard MUFON like every five seconds on the show. So, of course – they were uh, very high in reports. People were reporting stuff from years and years prior. It wasn't just because that year was higher in UFO reports. But uh, you just wonder. Uh, are the Marshall Islands monitored? That's a, that's a good question. Not sure. I don't think I've ever seen them show up on the uh, MUFON sighting statistics separately. Um, they do have some weird kind of designations as they, they do have, uh, I mean, once you fall out of the United States, it, it just falls dramatically. So, it, you know, like I said, uh, United Kingdom had 36, France had 33, Canada, 29, Brazil, four, Belgium had three, Australia, two, India, two, Germany, Italy with two. Uh, Mexico, Greece, Ecuador, Israel, Iran, Singapore, Costa Rica, Romania, Croatia, Bermuda, the Russian Federation, Puerto Rico, uh, Cameroon, and Ireland had one report each. So uh, unless somebody reports one from the Marshall Islands, uh, I doubt MUFON has a, um, a researcher there. Uh, if they did, you'd probably see reports from there. So I would just assume that they don't uh, based on the fact – I don't think I've ever seen the Marshall Islands on there. I'd have to go through uh, the monthly statistics. Uh, I don't remember if they do or not, but it, it certainly helps when you have um, MUFON representation because otherwise you're just hoping that somebody finds the website. And in other countries, I'm sure – there are other organizations that are, are getting the cases, and if uh, MUFON isn't really uh, – doesn't have a presence or people aren't aware of it, they're not going to call them or not going to email them. It's really easy to, to do a report. Um, I've done a couple over the years. Uh, my observations of things, I've put in reports for MUFON. I just think it's fair. Um, sometimes I get a call. Sometimes I don't. It's fun to talk to the investigators, uh, especially when they don't know who I am. It's kind of funny, like, um, to tell them, Hey, I, uh, I've been doing this for a while myself. And, oh yeah. Well, you know, I'm move on trained. Well, so am I. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think I've put in three reports total. Actually, one of mine was my wife had a sighting. So put that report in, talk to the move on peeps. But 
I don't know. We'll see. We'll see how things go. If uh, MUFON continues to sputter or if uh, we start to see any kind of – you'd think that it would be super big right now. They should be really getting out there with the government talking about all this stuff. And I don't see too much of an effort on them uh, of really getting out there and, and mixing it up with the uh, the government or uh, even out with the general public as much as I, I think they could continue to build up uh, what they do. And I, I think they should, should do some – a little bit of restructuring on, on how they do things, but eh, I'm not in charge, so not my place to say. Uh, but, uh, you know, people lose their minds over UFO sightings all the time. All these stories, it seems like. Uh, but don't have an example this week, but this week, our edition of what caused people to lose their minds. We're going to travel to, of course, social media and the outlet of Reddit of all places where people just uh, try to be punny, uh, try to uh, be uh, leave quirky comments that make them look more knowledgeable or sophisticated than what they actually are instead of actual good interaction with comments. People just try to, to, uh, to be silly which is so weird. I don't know why that ever started or how it's stuck. Just makes Reddit really unreadable sometimes. Um, anyway, pictures posted last week that were taken by a commercial pilot showed bright red glowing clouds. Um, obviously something underneath the clouds glowing, making this uh, strange view. Uh, if you've seen photographs, it's kind of weird. Uh, photographs in a short video showed the area of the Pacific Ocean glowing with red splotches that made the clouds, uh, again, glow from underneath. Do have a picture of that. If you've not seen it, it's pretty cool. There's a couple altered versions of it. Uh, I'll give you the unaltered version. Somebody just made it even brighter red. I don't know why you do that. It's pretty cool to begin with. So flying along, you, you look down, you see this. It's orange lights, either kind of look like they're in the clouds. They're so bright. And the uh, photographs, short video, made the rounds. Of course, I think it was uploaded by the pilot or unanimous or uni unanimously. Yikes. Um, anonymous, anonymously, easy for me to say, by somebody else on the behalf of the pilot, which the pilot wanted to rename or remain nameless, but I think the name ended up coming out anyway. Um, the most likely explanation, according to the internet sleuths that were looking at this, um, pointed toward the fictional television show Stranger Things. I mean, it's obviously an entrance to the Upside Down, according to a lot of people who you know seem to know things about the way the world works, according to science of the internet. Uh, well, hopefully they didn't actually believe that, but that was uh, the leading explanation or the joke. Cause again, you can't take anything you read uh, as far as comments, at least on Reddit seriously, cause uh, I don't think they take themselves seriously. That's just how it is. Uh, so what really was the cause of the red glow? You might've read about it. Um, seems like they've, uh, they figured it out pretty quick. And when that happens, the explanations are generally in the stories. You don't, you don't usually get this. Uh, sometimes the story will come out, 
and it'll be a, a complete mystery, utter chaos. Nobody knows anything. And then once they do figure it out, those stories are usually never updated. People walk away from the story not knowing the actual outcome. But in this case, uh, I think it was uh, pretty much explained in every one of these giant stories I've seen come out uh, all over the Internet, everywhere. Um, yeah, I heard volcanoes. I heard UFOs. UFOs is a big one, too. People uh, said they were moving in the videos, but they weren't really moving. It was the plane moving. It was shot from an airplane. So, so the plane was moving, not the things on the ground. Um, but uh, let's see. So what caused the red glow? And again, a lot of speculation uh, about all sorts of stuff from UFOs to the, uh, the upside down to all sorts of stuff. Um, but fishing vessels was uh, a big one. Uh, there was actually speculation about fishing vessels using red lights to catch mackerel-like fish known as sari, but spelled S-A-U-R-Y, that live in the Pacific Ocean. And, of course, uh, I've read a couple stories that were like, well, none of these can be proven. Prove it, it was a boat. Prove it, it was fishing vessels with right, red lights. Well, they did. They did. Uh, I was confirmed by Neil Jacobs, a weather modeling expert who entered the flight's location during the date and time of the photograph into globalfishingwatch.org, uh, which showed the vessels in the same formation as in the pictures of the video. So you can kind of uh, put it all together and see it. And uh, one big dead giveaway, too, which I saw one of the videos initially when all these stories were pouring out all over the internet. Uh, if you watch carefully in one of the, uh, one of the areas, the clouds lit up white and then suddenly turns red, which is uh, pretty much an indication when the lights were turned on from the ship. And yes, if you look not hard, you can find pictures of these ships with these giant led lights all over it. And I'll throw one of those into the chat room. We'll toss it gently so it doesn't sink. And there you go. It's giant red lights. And so it does attract these fish in the darker times of the night, which is kind of sad when you think about it. So creating this artificial light. So uh, apparently the sari can see the red lights. So they come out to the uh, surface and they catch them. It's a trick. Shouldn't be able to do that, but uh, they do that. Uh, so it does uh, attract them to the surface in darkness, and it's it's been observed in the Pacific Ocean uh, before. I remember seeing pictures of it from the International Space Station uh, a couple of years ago. It also made headlines. Uh, it was a pretty big story. I don't remember if I covered that one or not, but uh, it's a pretty big deal. And uh, earlier this year, even, in uh, Zaostan, China, people were terrified as the sky was glowing blood red. I remember this one, too. The red LED sari fishing boats were found to be responsible uh, for that one. That's a pretty scary one. I do have a picture of that one. I do remember that one as well. It wasn't a big splash headlines, but the video was scary just to see that. Um, and also, K2 
Cambodia fishermen, I should say Cambodian fishermen, are known to use green lights to assist with catching squid. So I, I don't know. I don't know if I agree with that, but I guess uh, you got to make your money. Got to make your money somehow. So do what you got to do to catch your fish. Just don't overfish. We need the fish. Don't mess up the um, the flow of nature too much here, guys. But uh, interesting stuff. People that lose their minds over it. And uh, it's a good thing when those kind of stories are solved. But this one was solved fairly quickly, which kept it from getting too big too fast but um, it's good to see that one hit a lot of mainstream media as well uh, we'll see what happens next week we will be back next week but for now keep your eyes in the skies your ears in the woods the hair standing on the back of your neck and always keep your mind slightly ajar and above all else don't stop believing for the paranormal news insider this is dr brian d parsons reporting